Why, hello there. It's me, Graham Norton here. Thank you very much for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. Let's see what we've got in store this week. Dame, yes, Dame Sheila Hancock tells us all about her memoir, Old Rage. John Waters tucks into his latest novel, Liarmouth, A Feel Bad Romance. Sarah Ferguson, Duchess of York, joins me in the studio to talk about her book, Her Heart for a Compass. And David Harbour is in to talk about trading the boards in a new West End play called Madhouse. Martha's back from her holidays with some tasty treats. And we gave away £500 to two very special alfresco eaters in our Waitrose Great Outdoor Eating Competition. Also, we've had some very interesting dilemmas for you this weekend in Graham's Guide. Let's go to Maria and see what you've been writing to us about. Yay! Um, how are you feeling today? Are you feeling perky? Are you feeling better? Are you, are you on a running machine? No, I'm not quite on a running machine yet, Graham. That's mean to make me follow that wonderful song. It's such a lovely song, isn't it? Makes me feel a bit teary, but then everything is making me feel a bit teary at the moment. People tell me it's the effects of the anaesthetic. I'm not sure. Yes, it's um, as the drugs as the drugs leave your bill as the drugs leave the building, you start to cry at everything. I think that's what happens. Is that true? Um, but no, it's been. I mean, I'm sorry for the people in the north that haven't had the nice weather, but actually today is very oppressive, and I did get some friends who wheeled me down to the beach in a wicker bath chair like Miss Marple (laughs) Um, which was nice just to get away from the four walls of recovery but much better and much more patient I think this uh, week Graham with life and the world and for old folk who shuffle to the post office in the supermarket because currently Graham Norton I am that old folk shuffling around just to the end of my Twitter and back. But it oh, is, it's... Yeah. No, it's just that thing, isn't it? When you're, when you're stuck behind an old person uh, walking down the street, you want to clobber them. And then you, you get ill and you kind of think, oh, <laughs> oh yeah, I, understand. I understand. I understand now. Yes. So it's good. In a way, you know, Graham, just to be a little philosophical about it, it's good because it's made me sort of slow down. Everything doesn't have to be done at breakneck speed. You don't have to multitask all the time. Sometimes it's just enough to kind of heal and wake up and smell the roses and, you know, marvel at the simplicity of life. Does that sound very cheesy? I really hope it does. And to thank your friends for putting the brake on the basket chair. So you, did, you, you didn't <laughs> Who just... Who said they did put the brake on the basket, <laughs> wicker basket chair? <laughs> Hurtling down the hill. How has your week been, please? Do tell. I have watched so... Well, I've been reading. I've been reading and I've watched an awful lot of television. More... I don't quite understand uh, how, but I am watching things I never would have watched. Uh, Such as? I'm, watch, I'm watching... Coronation Street? Uh, no, no, I would have watched that. Uh, yeah. This is a thing called The Boys. Have you ever seen The Boys? Uh, no, do tell. Explain. It's based on a kind of comic series, comic book thing, which I wouldn't have thought was my bag at all. Uh, but somebody said I might like it. And actually, I do quite like it, apart from the, the main guy. I don't know where he's really from. I, mean, I presume he's American. And for some reason, presumably because of the um, uh, comic book, he has to be from Britain. And his accent oh, is oh so bad, 
so monumentally terrible uh, that, that it's a bit of a distraction. And he yeah, probably yeah. had 18, you know, voice coaches. But I think we have to forgive a lot of Americans because when we try attempt to do American accents, we're often pretty stinky at it as well. But That's is he true. Dick Van Dyke bad? Is he sort of Dick he, Van Dyke He is bad? really way up there. And what's incredible is because it's one of those things, you know, so you believe that his eyes light up and cut cars in half, uh, but you absolutely do not believe he's in Britain. Uh, <laughs> well, that, that seems rather picky of you, Graham. <laughs> if he can cut cars in half and make his eyes light up, it's picky to pull apart his accent, frankly. He's amazing. He's a superhero. <laughs> he is. And I've been watching Life and Beth. Have you seen that? No. Which do, do You never know which outlets these are on. And I never know. Lost. They're on the television. That's all I know. Oh. Uh, Life and Beth is an Amy Schumer uh, written... Oh, we love uh, Amy Schumer. I mean, can I just say, if you're going to mention television, a little bit of research, you know, I'm just saying so that the people at home can follow what you're watching. I'm well, sure listen. somebody, I'm sure Connor or Einar or Polly are now busily looking them up on the computer, ready to tell you in your earpiece. Well, no, because listeners can do that. Because also, I own I own most of Google. So uh, what I'm doing is I'm driving traffic there at all times. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. It was clever of me to buy Google. I, I, I got in early doors. And, you uh, yeah. own most of Google. That is going to be a Daily Mail headline now. <laughs> BBC's top-paid host owns most of Google. Stop saying Google, Graham. I can't help it. It's a, it's a, uh, but no, that if you Google it, uh, it is. If, and you do need to like Amy Schumer. If you don't like Amy Schumer, because some people have a kind of allergic allergic reaction to her, they really don't like her. But if you do, it's ever so good. It's ever so good. Yes. Say it again. Say the title again, please. I'm writing it down. Oh, it's called Life and Beth. You are taking life slowly now, using a pen. <laughs> <laughs> a old, pen and telegrams, old, generally. Yes, it's a quill. In fact, she's using a quill and some ink. <laughs> she's you know writing. my life so well. Yes, she's right. As the gulls, as the gulls fly by the open window. It, it's a beautiful thing. Popping in to peck out my eyes occasionally. <laughs> I'm painting a good picture, aren't I? A lovely little sweetmeat. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'll play some music and then we'll get on to the letters. Uh, Poor, I mean, poor Harry Styles. Who was he to know that Kate Bush would come running up that hill and steal his thunder? Oh, I'm very happy for Kate Bush after 44 years or something mad. It just shows you the kind of strangeness of life, doesn't it? Strangeness, you see, Stranger Things, Kate Bush. Oh, yes. And David Harbour. David Harbour is on the show tomorrow. Oh, fantastic. You've got great guests today, though. Sheila Hancock and John Waters. What a treat. That's a dinner party, isn't it? That is a dinner party. Yes. I would like to be there if only I could. Yeah, and I, I'm not cooking either. So there you go. Two more letters, or two letters, in fact, will follow this. Virgin Radio. Okay, I'm going to read you a letter now, whether you like Please it do. or not. Mm-hmm. Dear Graham and Maria. I'm 58 and I live with my partner. I have two adult children and good relationships with my family. However, when I think back through my life and all of the friends I have had, I no longer speak to any of them and have since lost touch with all of them. I think people just go off me over time, but I'm not sure why. I know I have faults, but I don't really think I'm any worse than other people. I have a few friends now, although I wouldn't call them very close friends. 
I've lost confidence and I wonder if there's something about me that is putting people off. But how do I find out what it is? Maybe everyone else sees faults in me that I'm unaware of. It makes me sad and I worry that my lovely partner will go off me now too. And that is from Lizzie in Doncaster. Now, Lizzie in Doncaster, I'm slightly puzzled by your letter because how have you got to the age of 58 before there has been some sense of analysis um, over your relationships, work, social, etc., friends. Because this is something we all normally do as we go along. We process these things as we go along. And on one level, I want to say to you, don't overthink it. You've managed to get to the age of 58. You have adult children that you have good relationships with. You have friends now. Because there is a sort of, you know, you get to 58, the, the difficult thing of um, reassessing life when a lot of your friends possibly it's geographical or social changes. Um, but I would say that if you remain interested in others, um, that's always a good way to, you know, don't be too obsessed with your own narrative because I think we can get to a certain age where we get set into patterns and things. I, I mean, are you depressed? Is this a sort of depressed letter? Because if you are, I would say to see your doctor. And certainly, I'm sure your partner, your lovely partner, is singularly unaware of any of this. So these are the things um, in a sort of lighthearted way we can talk to our partners about because they love you and they want the best for you. And this is clearly causing you some sense of sadness. I mean, I want to say don't worry too much about it. But if it's major part of your life right now, then do worry and do go and see somebody and talk it through. It may be that you just need to sort of get a few things off your chest. But analysing the lost friendship, I don't know if that's ever going to end well. Graham, what do you think? Well, it's that thing, isn't it, where I think Lizzie's been very hard on herself. You know, she's see, she's kind of, uh, I guess her children are grown up, maybe her life is less busy and she's suddenly looked around her and kind of went, oh, where, what happened to all the people? And she's turned it inward and she's gone, mm. oh, it's it's me. People don't like me. And I don't think, probably, Lizzie, that is what's going on. I think you've been, you know, it's easy to be busy with our lives. You know, you've got a partner, you've got, you've been raising two kids, maybe you work as well. Uh, that's a lot. That's just a lot right there. You know, yeah, add to that clearing out the cupboard under the stairs and that's a full life. So who has time for friends? So I think that's kind of what's happened. Now things are kind of calming down. Your children are grown up and you're thinking, ooh, I, I'm sure I used to have a social life. And you did. And But here's the thing, Lizzie. It took this many years for you to lose it. So it's not going to be resolved in a heartbeat. This is a very slow little build. And, you know, and also you're not the same person you were when you were 20 and going out to bars. We made friends so easily then and we and, and, confided and in people so easily. And, people's needs and friendships change as well. You know, as you go on, you know, we shed like we're like sort of little creatures with skins. We shed friends and we gain new ones. But also, do, do, do you think, Graham, friendships at a certain age, take quite a lot of work. So if you're prepared to put in the time and make the arrangements and go for coffee and meet in bars and be interested and, you know, resolve problems and so on, then 
that's kind of all you need to do. I don't, I can't see there that is, there's any major per- personality change, is it? No, there's also a thing, I think, Lizzie, what you could do is just revisit some of those old friendships. You know, people you didn't fall out with, but just lost touch. You know, just but now what's great is there's so many ways to contact those people and just contact them and say, oh, you know, I was I, I was going through a box, whatever. Just say, I, I thought of you the other day and just wondered how you're getting on. If you ever, you know, if you want to meet up for coffee or drink, that'd be lovely. And just... You know, check in with people. And yes, they may not be your friends anymore, but there's something quite, I don't know, quite nostalgic and nice about getting older and looking back on friendships and thinking about it. Not, and as Marie says, not overanalyzing it, but just sort of enjoying the shared memory and that that shared of that sense of shared history and going, oh, do you remember that night when we all fell asleep mm. on the night bus? You know, all that sort of stuff. It's it's sweet and it's fun. Do you and, think Lizzie and, is frightened to open up that Tinder box though, in case she gets in touch with people and she gets a big fat sort of you know zero tumbleweed response? Nobody responds to her which kind of will fuel her fire for I am a bad person nobody wants to know me I mean you know it's difficult to reignite relationships especially if they've sort of fallen off the edge of the earth Yes, I mean, I don't think, I think Lizzie's just being very hard on herself. I don't think, I don't think she's holding back information in this letter. I just think she's feeling a bit glum and a bit down in the dumps and she's turned it all inward and she thinks nobody likes me and da 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 and actually you know as, as you were saying talk to a partner but also maybe talk to a professional maybe you know go to a doctor seek counselling I think That's so because, because I do think this is to do with kind of your self esteem and for some reason you have decided that you are a terrible person that people can't be friends with and I don't think that's True. It will be true if you continue to think like that, that it becomes true incredibly fast. Um, so uh, be very careful. And and I, th- I think you do need to talk to, you know, uh, starting with your partner and your family, talk to them about how you're feeling and see what they say. And But equally, I mean, look at counselling, maybe talk to your doctor and, and see where he will lead you or advise you. Um, I imagine... Yeah. I imagine. And and maybe Lizzie, throw a party, throw a summer party, and then lots of people come and then you think it, then you'll start to think, Oh, I don't really like having these people in my house. I don't think I really need any friends anymore. <laughs> Well, there's that, but also I, I don't do that, Lizzie. A, a party will be too stressful. Too and stressful. That, yes. That thing I was saying about it took a long time to get to this situation. Don't run. Don't, don't suddenly, I'm going to be social again. I'm going to have a huge party. Um, yeah, don't do that. Don't, no. don't. Uh, Jonathan and Darlington's been in touch. The more Lizzie dwells on this, the more she'll start to question everything. If you start looking for faults, your critical self will find them when in fact there are none. Be confident in yourself and be content. I mean, it's easier said than done, but you are right, Jonathan. That is what she should do. Uh, Lizzie, friendships are based on give and take. Do you call your friends or wait for them all the time to contact you? Pick up the phone and speak to one or two who used to be your closest friends. They may be feeling as isolated and unsure as you. And that's from Carol in Long Eaton. And I do think after time, people do like to hear back from you. You know, kind of, oh, wow, I haven't thought about her for years. Uh, Lizzie, stop being a plom. Poor little old me. I didn't know that phrase. Good now. Like it. Plom. Don't be a plom. Uh, reach out. Make contact with these people. I'm sure they would love to hear from you. Life moves us around. We come in and out of each other's lives. It probably isn't you. 
and that's from Steph in Stoke-on-Trent. And Charlie's in Nottingham. All relationships need two people to be committed to it. Lizzie's old friends may be feeling the same. She should reach out to them. My mom did this and now has the most packed social life. So it can be done. And even if the friendships don't become full friendships again, it'll be nice to kind of see people and, and hang out and just find out what they've been up to in the meantime. I shall read you a second problem and that will shut me up. Here we go. Dear Graham and Maria, I'm in my 30s and everyone from my partner, my friends and my family keep asking me when I'm I'm going to want to have kids. I'm not against the idea, but this time in my life, I don't think I'm ready. And I'm not even 100% certain that I do want to start a family. This doesn't seem like a good enough answer for everyone. And they want a solid answer on whether or not I do want to have kids. Look, I don't want to lie and say yes or no just for the sake of peacekeeping. My partner is the most understanding about my uncertainty, but still asks a lot. My parents can't understand why I don't know, and my friends who have already settled down are eager for me to join the club. I'm feeling a lot of pressure, and to be honest, it's putting me off. I don't want to be forced into a decision either way, but I'm struggling to not let their opinions influence me. How do I manage their expectations as well as my own? And that is from Anna in Dumfries. Anna in Dumfries, I'm sad for your letter too, because, you know, it's really, when you're saying, how do I manage their expectations? I mean, forget about the expectations of others. They do not matter. I mean, I would say to you, you do have to be honest and open with your partner because, you sort of need to be on the same page. But again, a bit like Lizzie's letter, you're turning this into something that is overwhelming you and taking over your life. And, you know, put it in a different context, Anna, and say you and your partner were having problems conceiving. I mean, people wouldn't be asking you because they'd know that it was a difficult area. So it's unkind and unfair of anyone to inquire about the notion of children because nobody knows what's going on in others' lives and behind closed doors. And it may well be that, you know, they're, they're could be something that you didn't want to talk about. So really, you need to close them down on that front. You don't want to lie about it, but it's it's insensitive to say the least. I mean, I just think in your mid-30s, you still have time, but, you know, time is ticking. As we know, it's, a, it's enraging for women that they have this, this time bomb and there's only a finite window. I kind of want to say to you, Anna, that in your own time and without telling anyone else you could go and see a doctor and say you know can you check my fertility can you see how long I've got which is readily available now you know you can see what your kind of egg situation is and so on I don't want to make you worse about this but I'm just saying do things in your own time and for your own good and give yourself some knowledge which is power in this situation it is all about you you don't need to share any of that information with others and you sort of in the nicest possible way want to close people down and say you know just by saying, yes, we're trying or we're practicing are the always often used phrases, which is kind of glib and should shut people down. But they still feel somehow that it's more to do with them than it is to do with you. And failing that, you just say, please, this is making me very sad and upset 
that you constantly are on my back about this. It's my decision and my partner's decision. And we're, you know, in discussions about it. Now, what do you think, Graham? It's hard for us because we don't have children. So I It is, really... but what I do notice is that people feel incredibly emboldened and uh, open about asking these questions. I know, it's seemed... raging. It's so crazy that you just walk up to virtual strangers and ask them. And here's the thing, Anna, if you have a baby, it doesn't stop. Then they want to know when you're going to have another baby. You know, it, it just, it's endless. Uh, people think it's open season on women and you can just ask them whatever they like about their fertility. And no, you can't. So I think, uh, what, first of all, you, you need to come up with just, as Maria says, some sort of shutdown phrase, some sort of like a... Uh, and that's it, folks. Uh, because people are going to keep asking you. And, and as I say, even if you have a baby, they'll keep asking you. So come down with some sort of shutdown phrase. And then you need to talk to your partner about this. And then, you know what? If it's not for you, it's not for you. But certainly, you can't have a baby because of peer pressure. Because, you know, it's not like painting your room, you know, green. It, no. <laughs> that, that baby's got to be with you for some time. So uh, you better be committed. You better be uh, fully behind the decision. So I, I think talk to your partner and, uh, you know... The good thing is, in a way, that you'll have to make the decision <laughs> in the next few years. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And then after and that... And I think, I think the idea, know. Graham, of, of taking back agency and finding out a little bit about, you know, in your 30s, you're not in your 20s, so might be a little bit more difficult. I'm sorry, I feel like I'm one of your horrible people sort of saying now, but if you give yourself back agency where you find out about your body, I think that might help you in your decision-making. Yes, it might galvanise you a bit if you're told, oh, actually, there's only, you know, there's one egg kind of wandering around in there. (laughs) If you want to do something with it, I think Yeah, I mean, I don't want to to make Anna in Dumfries panic in any way, but I think if you do something with your partner together, you go and check these things out. I mean, it could be that your partner, you know, is not firing on all cylinders or whatever the phraseology is. So, you know, these things are worth checking because they will inform your decision and they will inform any sense of urgency that you may have. And then, you know what, if somebody gets a tiny bit of wind about the fact that you're going to see specialists, they will shut the bejesus up because they don't want to be involved in an awkward conversation, which is, oh, apparently they're having a bit of difficulty. Everybody will suddenly go totally silent. Now, we're not saying that you are having difficulty, but you don't, you know, you want to say something that isn't rude, but also closes it down. And I think yeah. that might be the way. I don't know. I'm sure the Virgin Radio listeners will come up with a phrase that yes. they've had to use themselves to stop people being nosy and find, thinking that they have a right to do and say these things. Maria was saying there must be a phrase you could use. Uh, and another Anna Horsham was just saying, yes, mind your own business. And that is the bottom line. Uh, Rusty is in her 30s as well and I too have the same problem as my family asked me if I want kids I've told them it's none of their business live live life your way not theirs fair enough Uh, Lauren is in Leeds Uh, it's none of their business be clear and ask them to stop asking you as a mother of a 16 16 month old who had 5 years of fertility treatment misery needs company the friends who have kids are probably jealous of your free time and lovely life. P.S. I'm a therapist. I'm a therapist. Listen to me. So that's Lauren in Leeds, essentially going with the old, 
It's none of your business. Uh, Suze, Suze from West Sussex. This is not like buying a sofa. How true that is. Mind you, even us, yes, us, you probably couldn't get a sofa in nine months, could you? There you go. Uh, have one conversation with your family and tell them that it's your business and only your business. You can tell them uh, that when you're ready, you will let them know. Don't let anyone sway you into having a child. I mean, certainly you can't bow to peer pressure <laughs> when it comes to having a kid. That would be, yeah, that would that would be a bad idea, I would say. Uh, who else is here? Stephanie. Stephanie's in the New Forest. It's nobody else's business. And how rude! Exclamation mark. You need a stock phrase such as, I'll be sure to let you know. Don't worry. Glib and light is better than defensive. You don't have to justify yourself to anybody. I'm a mom of two and had them in my late 30s, but having children is not the only reason to be married or the be-all and end-all of life. This is a huge and personal decision for you and your partner only. People sometimes ask because they're excited, but it's a huge assumption on their part. You need to stop worrying about pleasing them and please yourself. Well, thank you very much for those responses to today's Graham's Guide. Um, I mean, I, it is so odd the way people feel it's just open season on, on women to us about <laughs> having kids and when are you having another kid? Da, da, da. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Time to meet my first guest of the day and I love a guest that needs no introduction and we've got one. Dame Sheila Hancock. She's got a new memoir out called Old Rage. It's out now in hardback and she joins us now. Good morning, Sheila. Good morning, Graham. How are you? I'm all right. How are you today? I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. Oh, good, good, good. Uh, because a lot of people are bringing books out at the moment, and it's all well. I'd yeah. nothing else. To, I'd nothing else to do in lockdown, so I wrote a book. But you, <laughs> you started this book long before lockdown. Yes, I did. I mean, I was asked by my publishers to write a book about growing old, uh, which I'm quite experienced at, and uh, <laughs> they, I think they visualised, and so did I, a rather gentle. You know, book about, I don't know, just retiring gracefully and enjoying life and not rushing around too too much. And then all sorts of things. I started it. I actually started it. And it was going to be lovely. And then suddenly things happened, like in quick succession, Brexit, which upset me dreadfully, a very serious illness. My One of my daughters had grade three cancer. Um, I got something called rheumatoid arthritis. And then the bloody virus. And we were all in lockdown. So... It couldn't have been described as a very, very contented old age anymore. And actually, I think I've ended up with something much more honest and hopefully also something about the future that we might get as a result of all these horrible things that have been happening. And also what's extraordinary, Sheila, is is your, I don't know, your your fight. And, you you know, because I think old age, it's a it's a tough thing for all of us, you know, as we head towards it. Uh, you're mm. dealing, you're in the throes of it and yet it, it, yeah. you, refuse, you refuse to be defeated by it. Where does that come from? Well, I don't think it's anything... To, that's life, isn't it, Graham? Life is difficult all the way through. 
you know, my childhood was quite tricky. I got cancer when I was middle-aged and menopause and all those other things. I think every stage of life has its problems. I've never felt really well all my life, quite honestly. <laughs> I've always had aches and pains. And you know what it's like. You lose your voice before first nights on a regular basis and all sorts of my body has let me down constantly. So it's no surprise that it's turned against me a bit in my old age. But I'm not going to let it beat me. I mean, that's the thing. And that's, that's been my attitude all the way through life, I think. And it, I think you have to slide over all the changes. That's, that's the difficult thing. You go, interesting hearing early in the program about that woman being pestered about having babies. It's, it's a nightmare when you have your first child. I mean, it's made out to be this blissful thing that you should all be jumping into and you're not a real woman until you do it. That's absolute nonsense. It turns your whole world upside down. And again, you have to rethink your life. You're no longer the one that can go out anytime you like and go on holiday without having to bundle a baby along with you and all that. But there does seem to be something in the the kind of Hancock genes. Can you tell a story in the book about your, your sister uh, recovering from an accident, but also you recovering from things? Yeah, well, I th- I guess I am a bit like that. I think that may be something to do with my wartime childhood because, you know, we had horrible things happening and we had to survive them. And you either survive. I think that's true of life, actually, Graham, don't you? That you either survive or you go under. It's your choice. And I actually, the one message of my old age is that nobody's going to help you, really. They'll hold your hand while you do it yourself. But ultimately, including death, you've got to do it on your own. And birth, yeah. you do it on your own with a bit of a push from your mother. But I mean, you know, it's, it's a fact of life. You either, you, it's your choice how to deal with it. And some people deal with the most horrific situations and they survive and have a viable life. It's extraordinary. And you have, you know, your personality all through your life, you know, you've been quite, you've been feisty and impatient and all these things. And yet in this book, there is a kind of, uh, not mellowness, but an optimism. Were you, were you surprised when you looked back at the book to kind of see who you are now, who you've become? Yeah, I don't really know, Graham, quite honestly. I've ended up still not knowing, but I do have hopes for the future. I mean, I think it's kind of come full circle. When I was a child, we had hideous things happening. And then out of that came the welfare state and all sorts of wonderful things because people were determined to change the world. They, they united to do that. And it was grim, but we did it. Now we've had a series of horrible things happening to us. And I think as a result of that, certainly the youngsters that I deal with, and I do a lot of work with young people, including my grandchildren, they have a new attitude. It's, it's not to do with politics. It's not left and right like it was when I was young. It's to do with the environment. It's to do with Black Lives Matter. It's to do with Me Too. It's all those things. And they're determined. And they're on the march to change all that. And while that's there, we've got the hope of something amazing happening to our planet rather than destroying it. And, and, so and she that- preachily. Well, no, but what's good, what's, what I think is amazing is that you, because, you know, there's always been young people, <laughs> young people have always been on those marches. We were on them when well, we were kids. And yet somehow what, what happens to those young people as they get older and they just turn into gnarly old people who shout at the television? Well... I don't know, really. A lot don't. I mean, I've on the, on the book tour, I've been meeting all sorts of people. 
volunteering. I mean, the amount of volunteering in this country of people after they've retired, keeping the company go country going, actually. And I, I don't know, some people get tired. You know, I've got, I write about it in the book. There's one man who's actually decided to go for a kind of invalid life and he's enjoying it. He doesn't want to have to exercise his legs and try and get better and keep going. He likes to sit in his chair and everybody go and visit him and have a glass of wine. And that's a perfectly viable choice, one that I will eventually be making. <laughs> but not yet, not yet. And Sheila, in the book, you talk about, you know, doing acting jobs and how sometimes, uh, you know, you've been pushed not just the edge of physically, but also mentally. Where are you now? Are you still in the market for, for acting roles? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just about to start on a four-part do- uh, drama um, for television. Um, I'm playing a small part, I'm glad to say, Uh but I love I love working, Graham, because it gets you with people. You know, I live on my own, and I I I'm out to meet old people and talk about hip replacements, and I love getting <laughs> on the, you know, I, I just seeing all the youngsters. I, a film I did called Edie, where I climbed a mountain, and obviously all the crew apart from me were were young, and it was just such a wonderful thing to be able to do at 83 as I was then to climb a mountain with a lot of youngsters. I mean. Who has a job like that? So I, I, I'm, I'm going to keep going until I can't. I must say, I, I, let's just plug that movie because I saw it because I was interviewing you about it. It's called Edie. It must be out there on one of those streaming services. It's it extraordinary. Is, it is. Yeah, people it's, must, it was must. a lovely. People still react really deeply to it, and I love doing the sort of work that moves people into action. And a lot of people have contacted me and said it made them. D- decide to do something because it was about an old woman who'd been caring all her life and really her life had stagnated and she makes up her mind in her old age to achieve something big and she does and you've got this you've got this other string to your bow where we see you on things like uh, a goggle box and you do panel shows and you were doing things like that i think back when was there a kind of a snobbishness amongst your actor friends when they saw you crop up on on panel shows and things like that yeah, I've always had a really odd career. I, I do remember in the old days, they used to read out at the end of it, Sheila Hancock is a national theatre player or Sheila Hancock is a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I, I was usually doing some awful sort of tits and ass rubbish and they'd go to see it kind of summed up my career, really. I mean, it's... Uh, but it's I've had to work, you know, I've I had to earn a living, as did John. So I have done an awful lot of rubbish. And, you know, that can't be held. In fact, sometimes I've forgotten I've done it. You know, people contact me. I did a terrible, terrible film about, you know, the girls that wear stockings. What's that? Um, St. Trinian's. Oh, yes. One of the worst films ever, ever made. I, I can't remember what it's called. It's blank from my mind. But somebody sent a tweet to my PA lady saying, some wild cats of St. Trinian's, why? And I told my PA to say, the money. And, uh, you know, it's as simple as that. Nine times out of ten, I'm afraid to say. And thank God now I don't have that problem quite so much. But also, presumably making a bad film can be just as much as much as much fun as making a good film. Well, that one was particularly weird, darling, because I was playing the headmistress that was originally played by Alice Nessin. Can you imagine the cheek of me to even say yes to the part? And then for some reason... I don't know whether it was me or the writer decided to play it Dutch. 
So I went to the Dutch embassy <laughs> with this awful script and asked them to help me with the accent. And I, I just look back and think, how could I do that? I wouldn't do that now, but I did then. I had the cheek of the devil and I thought it was a great script and I thought it was going to be very funny. It wasn't. Oh. I hope it's not out there and everybody's going to now look at it. <laughs> yeah, no, people should Google Edie. People should Google Edie for yeah, sure. Yeah. Please, 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 that rather than Wildcats of St. Ginian. And how are you with things like learning lines and stuff? Is that all still, Is are those things still firing? Well, they are, but I have, you know, I, I, I relate in the book a terrible day when I had a total blank day. Yeah. And I think all actors dread that and, and all actors experience it. A lot of actors give up working in the theatre because of that kind of stage fright. It's amazing. A lot of the actors that you wouldn't dream have this. But if you think about it, Graham, it's very odd, isn't it, that you stand in the wings and you have nothing but the words in your head. That That's your tools. You haven't got a hammer or a chisel or whatever people have normally for tools. Yours is the words in your head. And you hope to God they're going to come out in the right order and the other person is going to put theirs in the right order. And sometimes they don't. And sometimes something goes wrong or you just suddenly, I've had this happen in a play when I've been in it for about a year. Or I think it was a musical, actually. And I suddenly thought, had that awful moment when I thought, where am I? What am I doing? Who am I playing? What? And I, I completely came out of character and became me thinking, why am I standing on this stage? <laughs> singing this up? And it was frightening. And I had a similar experience which I report and when I did a thing about about witches recently and and it was dreadfully day and it was raining and awful and I completely blanked again and once you blank you then panic and you think I'm not going to remember the next line and then you start thinking what's the next line what's the next line which is disastrous because you've got to be absorbed in the character and forget about the lines if you possibly can but it is horrific have you ever had anything like that happen well, all the, only those stupid things of kind of, have I said this already? I'm, yes, sure, yes. I'm sure I've said this bit already. Uh, yes. All of that. Uh, Sheila, uh, Old Rage is the memoir. Honestly, uh, getting old, it, it's not easy, but I, I talk to you and I kind of think it's not that bad either. You really are no. a, an inspiration. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Dame Sheila Hancock, everybody. And the book thank is you. Old Rage. Take care of yourself, Sheila. Bye. Thank you. You too, Graham. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Time to meet my next guest. He is a filmmaker and writer. You'll know some of films as Crybaby, Serial Mom, Hairspray. And now he brings us his first novel. It's called Liarmouth, a feel-bad romance. And he joins us now, John Waters. Hello, John. Hi, how are you, Graham? I'm very well. Lovely to talk to you. So, uh, why, like, you are a storyteller. That's what you do. Even in your nonfiction, you tell stories. Why yeah. did a novel take this long? Well, because I just wanted to dare myself. I mean, all the movies are fiction completely. And I wrote a book called Car Sick, where I hitchhiked across America by myself when I was 66 years old. And the beginning of that, I, I imagined the worst rides and the best rides. So that was fiction, too. So that was the trainer wheels for it. So I just wanted to dare myself to do something I hadn't done. And what I love, what I love about this book is you suddenly realize, oh, film has been holding you back. 
<laughs> As whatever whatever wild thing happens in your movies, this is so much more. You must have loved it. it I mean, it feels like a really natural progression for you. Well, that's, I'm glad you say that. It's a compliment. But um, as you know, you write novels. Um, this this was maybe eight drafts it took to get to this. Uh, and uh, to make it sound like I'm just telling you a crazy story is rewriting and rewriting and re- to make it sound like it's naturally a story. But yes, uh, in a movie, you have to show it or say it right away. In a novel, you can go into sentences of their lunacy much deeper than you can in a movie. And it's got a sort of traditional... Uh, uh sort of a format in that it's a yeah. it's a road it's kind of a road trip and there's yeah. three generations of a family yes i think i've always done family movies i mean in a weird way i mean pink flamingos was about a family a serial mom was about a family so um i think families are the most revealing if you really want to know what somebody's like see them how they act around their parents and you really get a good picture so this is uh, so. Tell us who who's in this family. It's it's Marsha Sprinkle is our kind of our, our central character. Yeah, uh, she's a suitcase thief in airports, and she has her her uh, employee Daryl, whose salary is he gets to sleep with her one time a year. But the beginning of the book opens on that day, and as she said, she's no man's used up calendar. So she ditches him and goes on the run. But she's after her daughter, who she wants to ruin her life, who is addicted to trampoline jumping. And she has a band (laughs) of cult followers who are addicted to movement at all times. And then there's also her grandmother who does facelifts on pets in New York. And so those sorts of things are so close to the truth. I mean, there isn't. Is there plastic surgery for, for pets? Well, there is a nautical thing where you can get testicles after you've had your dog. Uh, oh, yes. It looks like I'm not making that up. Look it up. No, no, there I know. Yeah. And so uh, I believe it's around the corner. I believe in L.A. there must be dog facelifts. It's coming. It's coming. That's what I mean. Everything in the book is pushed. But there are people that are addicted to running. There are people that are addicted, as you know, to bicycle riding. So and jumping, too. If you go online, you'll see people that are fanatical uh, trampoline. Now, I have taken it to another level where they're on the run and they become a minority that is discriminated against, actually, because they're always bouncing in public. And you do that thing, it, although it's 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 crazy and whatever you like, but it is quality, it's all based in kind of real places. You know these places that the road trip's going yeah. along. Well, sure. It starts in Baltimore and it goes uh, up to New York and to Provincetown, where I am right now. So it ends in Provincetown, which uh, I, I'm not going to go into the plot spoiler, but the Thank festival... You. The, <laughs> <laughs> the, the festival that is celebrated at the end for a new sexual minority. It could happen here. That's next. I mean, we have we have gay pilots week, gay family week. We have ones. I don't know. There are that many gay pilots. you know. And so uh, it, it's pretty amazing, really, that every week they have dedicated to a new sexual minority. So this is coming. It's all could happen. And are you now thinking, ooh, now that I've I've written this story, maybe I could film it? Are you kind of poking around and trying to turn it into a script? Well, I love that idea because then someone would have to buy the music, buy the movie rights for me to hire me to write the uh, the thing. So I'm all for that economically. Um, <laughs> 
This movie would probably have ratings problems, I think, although maybe it is time to have uh, a NC X-rated movie finally be a hit again. I, I hear the new movie called Blonde about Marilyn Monroe is going to be NC-17, a Hollywood film. So maybe it's time to try that. And there also, with all the bouncing and stuff, there would be some special effects budget, definitely. And there is a talking sexual member in it. So that would be special effects, too. Of, of course, John. Um, and John, so that's first novel. I've also seen you, you, do, you seem to be doing more acting than you used to do. I saw you in well, uh, Search uh, Party and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yeah, but I've always done that some. I mean, I was in the Alvin the Chipmunk movie. I was in the Chucky movie. I was in uh, Law and Order. I played a pornographer. Big stretch. <laughs> and does it? Do you kind of get a kick out of being on other people's sets, or does it kind of annoy you to kind of think, oh? I would make this, this would be a much better no, film if I'm I was making No, I'm glad I don't have to sit around and all the pressure of directing when I do it. Um, I like doing it in things that you wouldn't expect me to be in. That's why I always say no to independent movies, you know, ones you'd expect to see me in. So if it's a big Hollywood thing or something that's like so crazy, uh, I I definitely like to be in it. I, I uh, And sometimes I go out and say I want to be in the next Final Destination movie. I want to be in the remake of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. So sometimes I tell my agents to look for parts for me, but I don't have to go in and audition. They either get me or not. And because of the the, the lockdown, you know, because you, I, you t- people may not know, but you tour a lot. You do live shows a lot. Are they kind of I, back on, are you back on the road now? Oh, completely. I just was in London. I played the Barbican Center. It was great. And uh, so, yes, I was in Spain. I was in Madrid, Barcelona. I did 10 cities uh, in America before I did my Christmas tour right before COVID came back. So I just made it. I got, uh, yeah, I'm on the road a lot, about, you know, maybe 40 a year. So that's kind of a lot. Yeah, it's like vaudeville. I'm I'm out there. And, you know, that fascinates me that you're, you know, you're doing shows in Spain. Like, do you do you walk out and kind of go, yes, these are my people? <laughs> they, I, do they because spend- I did it in Poland. I did it in Poland. And it was so amazing when I did it in Poland. It was, it was before Ukraine nightmare that's going on, but it was still in Poland. And uh, we showed Crybaby and this older man stood up in the question and answer, speaking through an interpreter. And he kind of looked like Khrushchev. He was an old communist. He said that. And he said, but I tell you, when I, I never saw, I saw Crybaby illegally in this country when you could pirate print. And when I saw Willem Dafoe smack Johnny Depp on the butt, I knew I was gay. And I thought, you're kidding. You know, this was so amazing. And it was an 80-year-old Polish communist man. And uh, I'm always amazed. How do you even know who I am here when I come to foreign countries? It's, It's really, really kind of amazing and very, very nice. No, that must be so lovely to think that these things you've made have this life and they've been passed around, kind of bootleg. Co- I mean, not so nice they're bootleg copies, but still yeah. <laughs> nice that they're out there. There are in places you'd never expect. You know, I went to Finland and they said, oh, you got me through high school. I said, I did in Finland? You know, so it, it, it is amazing and very touching, actually. And people say, oh, you made me feel good about myself. So I feel like a twisted Mother Teresa. And are you when you do the the these the tour now? Are you reading yeah. from Liarmouth? No, no. When I do my spoken word show, it's called false negative. That's the <laughs> nobody says they're false negative because uh, <laughs> if you get a negative, you say fine. You say don't test me again. I know I have it. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's no. It's a seventy-minute monologue that's completely written and rehearsed and 
constantly updated with the news and everything. So, uh, no, I talk about the book a little and we sell the book sometimes at the end, definitely. But uh, when I did the book tour, I did some readings. Yeah, and then you have conversations on stage and that kind of stuff. Yes. And is it is it odd kind of talking about a novel because normally it's it's your life and your you know the the your nonfiction yeah. is kind of things that's mind things you've observed things you've seen do you enjoy talking about the novel sure because it's something new to talk about basically you know i how many times can you ask how many when did you meet divine you know i i try <laughs> to think of different ways to tell the story but it, it is something new to talk about and what's been so amazing on this tour is how young everybody is it's the youngest audience i've ever had which is really encouraging because that's the only thing you can't buy you know and your original off your original audience begins to die out and then you know you, as soon as they say we had it better when we were young you know they're old and they don't have any <laughs> anymore and very quickly, uh, is there a, a novel number two in the works? Sure, I've got, I've got a germ of it. If that's a good way to put it in my mind. That's always festering. Yes, <laughs> lovely. Yes, I, I, I'm still infected and ready to spread. <laughs> well, in the meantime, people can enjoy Liarmouth, a feel bad romance. It's out in hardback now. Uh, John, get on with your day. Enjoy Provincetown. Have a lovely Saturday. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Graham. Still to come, David Harbour joins me to talk about his new West End play, Madhouse, and Sarah Ferguson, Duchess of York, is chatting about her book, Her Heart for a Compass. But before we get to that. Uh, let's cross to the kitchen and see what Martha's been up to. We'll also be giving away £500 to our favourite entrance for the Waitrose Great Outdoor Eating Competition. Beep, beep. Uh, it, she has returned. Martha Collison, show chef, is back from her Holly Bobs. Hello, Martha. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. Where were you? Where'd you go? What'd you do? Oh, wah, wah, wah. Went, I went to Greece for a week and ate Ooh. lots of feta cheese, lots of olives, <laughs> and yeah, can't move now. <laughs> well done, you. Did you try the Retsina? Oh, I I didn't. Tell, oh, good. Tell me more. What is this? Oh, you know that that Greek wine. Oh, which I you know I love a bit of wine. I need to go even, back. <laughs> I need to even go back. my even my gnarly old jaded palate uh, struggles with Retsina. But there you go. <laughs> or maybe uh, I don't need to go back. Then. <laughs> no, no, you, you don't. You don't need to go back for that. Uh, okay, uh, tomorrow is Father's Day, and you've got a treat for fathers everywhere. I do for fathers or for anyone in your life who likes a good breakfast. Um, now this is a tomato mushroom and black pudding baked eggs, and it all goes in one dish. So you can treat your dad or your loved one, but you don't have to do loads of washing up, which is a win for all. <laughs> is this based on a what you we, we've had this before? Is it the shakula or the the similar to a shakshuka? That's the one, yes. shakshuka, yes. Yes, so it's a kind of a tomato-based sauce. Um, this one has got black pudding, it's got portobello mushrooms sliced up, and that gets all fried off with some onions and makes this lovely, thick, rich tomato sauce. Then we crack in eggs into each of the little holes that you make in your sauce, sprinkle over a little bit more black pudding, some cherry tomatoes, and then the, the best bit of this recipe, I think anyway, is one of my own recipes, so I'm blowing my own horn a little bit, but <laughs> is that I've taken some breadcrumbs, mixed them with some olive oil and seasoned them, and then you sprinkle that over the top before it gets baked. So it reminds you a little bit of fried bread. So you've almost got your whole full English in one big dish, it goes into the oven for 15 minutes, and when it comes out, you're ready to go. 
I mean, I wondered what that was. So that's breadcrumbs on top there. That is genius. And how, sorry, how long did you pop it in the oven for? So it goes in for about 15 minutes, but basically until the eggs are set. You just don't want any of that kind of wobbly white. You want them to be cooked through. But yeah, breakfast can be a bit of a faff to make for people when you've got a million pans on the go and everything's ready at different times. So baked eggs are great, especially if you're cooking for a family or a crowd because you can put it all in the oven and then it all comes out at the same time and it's all ready. My top would be, remember that it does have to go in the oven. Don't start making this in something that has a rubber handle. Oh, exactly. (laughs) That's the best tip of all. (laughs) That's so annoying when you're like, you're following the recipe and then you go, put pan in oven. No! (laughs) No one told me. Uh, Very good. So tomato, mushroom, black pudding, uh, baked eggs. And that is for Father's Day tomorrow. Um, Delicious. Uh, You can see the recipe. And in fact, you can find all the past and present recipes in the brand new Graham Norton with Waitrose Hub. There's a hub, Martha. Oh, so exciting. Uh, I know. It's on... It's on the Waitrose website. You head to waitrose.com slash showchef to see all of the recipes cooked by Martha. You can also check out the recipe on our socials at Virgin Radio UK. And this particular recipe is also found in this week's Waitrose Weekend newspaper. Yep, absolutely. I've got five tomato recipes in this week's Weekend newspapers. If you love tomatoes, it's the one for you. (laughs) The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Waitrose Great Outdoor Eating Competition. It's our celebration of al fresco dining. And more importantly, your chance to win £500 to spend at Waitrose. So last weekend, what happened was I asked you all to impress myself and show chef Martha with a video of an outdoor dining moment you've had. Didn't matter what it was. It could be picnics, barbecues, family's friends, full meals, made the kitchen taken outside. Just so long as you were eating outside and you pointed a camera of some sort at it. Well, we've received all your entries, so thank you very much to everyone who submitted a video. Uh, Martha and I have been very judgy. We like being judgy. And we've picked a winner each. Now, so, Martha, you're going first, so uh, over to you. Yes. Oh, I, I just loved watching all the entries. It made me hungry. I wanted to come around for lunch. But this one was my favourite because it looked like a party that I wanted to go to. <laughs> the food looked good. The decor was good. So my winner of the £500 to spend at Waitrose is Joanne from Potter's Bar. Ooh. Is she on the line? <laughs> I think so. I am on the line. Woo! Sorry. Yay! Thank you, Martha. Thank you, Graham. Oh, you're so welcome. Honestly, the food looked incredible. Now, I feel like we've got a clip of your entry so we can everyone can hear all the things you make, but there's one part that was my favourite and I'm going to talk about that afterwards. Okay. Hi, Graham and Martha. Happy eating al fresco. We're celebrating my birthday today and my beautiful sister and her lovely husband, Justin, have cooked us our food for today. And I'm just going to show you, look, how beautiful is all this food and the table. And my parents match the tablecloth as well, look. <laughs> Unplanned. How wonderful is that? Anyway, uh, Justin, what are we eating so today? So, Graham, we have um, Cote de Boeuf from Waitrose. And it looks delicious and it's cooked on the green egg. Mm. Fantastic. And we've also got beautiful birthday cake, but you can't well, have a video of that yet. Oh, and we've got non- op- non-alcoholic Prosecco because I've got to drive. Graham and Martha, I've got to drive. <laughs> cheers, Graham. Anyway, cheers, cheers Graham. Graham. Cheers, Graham. Martha. Bye. Oh, so good. My favourite part, right? And you have to, I think you can watch the video if you go to the Virgin Media, Virgin Radio socials. But 
the uh, Joanne's parents, when she says they match the decorations, <laughs> like they match exactly. <laughs> they, the top looks like it's been made from the tablecloth. It's amazing. <laughs> Uh, yes, that that was hilarious. I, th- I think my parents de- definitely made the video on, on that one. Yeah, they absolutely did. And yeah, even the non-alcoholic drink. I want to know where you were driving, Joanne. Where were you going? <laughs> oh, my sister lives in Beaconsfield and I live in Potter's Bar. So uh, my lovely sister and her husband were hosting my uh, 50th birthday bash. So I couldn't drink. Oh. So, um so that was so that was that, yeah. The food looked worth the travel, though. Um, but congratulations and happy birthday! Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And we should say well, you didn't just win because uh, <laughs> because waitress got a mention in the video, but it it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt. <laughs> All right, congratulations, Joanne. Take care. Thank you both. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Yeah. Uh, well done for bagging £500 to spend at Waitrose. And we'll be revealing my favourite in tomorrow's show. Yeah, another winner. So thanks again to everyone who entered the Waitrose Great Outdoor Eating Competition. And I'll talk to you tomorrow, Mar- uh, Martha. Martha, mm-hmm. not Maria. Martha, <laughs> that's who you are. <laughs> that <right>. is me. <laughs> the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Well, ring all the bells. She's here, ladies and gentlemen. Martha Collison, show chef. Uh, hello, how are hello. you? Hello, I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm very well. All the better for your bright biscuits. <laughs> uh, they really, they are like little rays of sunshine on a plate. So these are our gay pride biscuits. We're celebrating pride through the medium of biscuit. <laughs> yeah, these are tie-dye rainbow biscuits, a recipe by the very talented Ed Kimber, who makes all sorts of beautiful kind of pastries, bakes, and these are his creation um, which I have tried to replicate for you so they are a lovely kind of short crust really crumbly biscuit with a riot of colour on the top so we've got this amazing tie-dye icing and it's a really fun icing technique so I'm sure people are going to enjoy giving this a go No because to give I mean obviously you can get on uh, if you go to waitrose.com slash showchef uh, or you go to our socials at Virgin Radio UK you'll be able to see pictures but it's uh, I don't know whether it's is it Damien Hurst or Mark Quinn does the artist does a pictures like this and it's kind of a swirly rainbowy thing so how do you make that effect on top of a biscuit so you want to start by making an icing and it's an icing that has egg whites in it which means that it sets hard because if you did this with just a regular water icing just icing sugar and water it would run all off the edge of your biscuit it'd be a disaster <laughs> an, <laughs> idiot, an idiot would do that <laughs> a very colourful messy kitchen is what you'd have I mean that is what I had anyway but that's kind of <laughs> part of the fun um, so you make this lovely royal icing which sets hard and then you divide that into seven bowls so you scoop it around. You have to be a fan of washing up if you want to make these. I tell you that much. Seven bowls. <laughs> There's more to come, Graham. Don't worry. So seven bowls, <laughs> and then we're going to colour each one different colours. Um, you can buy a little kit from Waitrose that has does a rainbow cake, but you can use those colours to do cookies. So you colour each bowl with a different colour of the rainbow. Then you take a plate and you put a little blob of each colour onto the plate in like a little kind of circle, and then you dip your biscuit into the colour give it a little 90 degree twist okay and lift it out kind of try and catch the drips on the biscuit and then it should make this lovely swirly pattern you put that onto the plate now that will be your best biscuit <laughs> sadly the parade parade has passed by now the yeah. parade 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 is over you've made one biscuit <laughs> I mean that's all you need <laughs> give it to someone you love but just one biscuit um, and then you repeat you can use that plate for maybe maximum two more biscuits and then you need to get another plate 
and do it again just to get that beautiful pattern i mean if you don't care about the pattern just dip it in each color and have one of each color but it, it does look really fun and they i have to say they do look fabulous absolutely fabulous and the actual biscuit is the biscuit that's really easy is it yeah it's pretty easy it just all goes into a food processor if you've got one if not you can do it by hand but it's all together like you're making pastry so those are really sim- straightforward and simple and then the icing is where it's all at but it is really fun to do and I think people will enjoy <laughs> giving and, it a try if it works if it works as it has here today with the steady hand of Martha Collison uh, they do look absolutely spectacular uh, tie-dye rainbow biscuits uh, you can, as I say you can find the recipe at waiters.com slash showchef or it'll be on all our socials at Virgin Radio UK. Uh, Martha, stay with me because Waitrose Great Outdoor Eating Competition. Uh, basically, this is our celebration of Alfresco dining, and we're giving away five hundred pounds to spend at Waitrose. Basically, I asked you last weekend to submit a video of dining outdoors, or just you know any old thing—a picnic, you dunking a biscuit and coffee on a step, it, it, whatever. We just wanted a picture, a video of you eating outdoors. Well. You did it so, so well. Uh, Martha and I have got all judgy. And we now add to our two favourite videos. Yesterday, we heard from our first winner from Bottas Bar. Uh, that was Joanne, mm. which was chosen by you. Oh, yeah. The coat de boeuf and the matching shirts. That's what did it for me. It was very good. <laughs> I was torn. I was torn. Because uh, really, if it was up to me, there was a dog eating bits of turnip. Did you see that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, very sweet. I, I felt maybe waiters wouldn't thank me. <laughs> If I awarded the prize to a dog eating bits of raw turnip, I felt it really wasn't using that many ingredients. Uh, So I can reveal now uh, that our second and final winner of that £500 to spend in Waitrose is Michelle Clayton. And she's on the line now. Hi, Michelle. Hello. Hi, congratulations. Well done, you. Thank you so much. Uh, now, I have to say, your video, it wasn't just the food that was impressive, but it was also just the way you panned effortlessly from one delicious thing to the next. You have a very steady hand, Michelle. I know. I literally did it all in one hand with my iPhone. <laughs> I mean, impressive. Very, very impressive. Uh, i tell you what, let's listen to uh, some of the things you made. Here we go. The sun is shining, so lunch in the garden today. Mini pork and chorizo pies with homemade shortcrust pastry. Delicious. Some cheese scones, some parmesan and pancetta choux pastry. Um, a lovely cooling iced tea with peach and orange. Oh, yes. Homemade scotch eggs with a runny yolk. My favourite. And a rocket salad. Wouldn't be summer without beautiful British strawberries. Yeah. And a little side salad. We've got some pork and apple homemade um, sausage rolls. Delicious. Some homemade tortilla chips with three different dips. So we have a sour cream cheese and chives with garlic, <laughs> a lovely hummus, and some salsa with um, red onion and coriander. We've got some homemade focaccia bread with so um, bread art that are made into sandwiches. And to complete the picnic, we've got a lovely Prosecco fruit jelly. I mean, Michelle, who was coming round? <laughs> there was only two of us, so we've been eating it for the rest of wow. the week. <laughs> <laughs> and, and do you, I mean, so obviously you are a really keen chef to make all of those things from scratch. 
Yeah, I love cooking. I pretty much cook daily from scratch, to be honest. So, uh, yeah. I mean, really, really, really impressive. Uh, you must you saw that one, didn't you? Oh, yeah. It was the Picnic of Dreams. Like, did, I want to know how far you carried the picnic because it looked heavy. <laughs> all of those things. <laughs> no, literally, my patio doors aren't too far away, so it all came out of the patio doors onto the table. Oh, nice. Cool. So we went down the local park. Yeah. But it was... <laughs> no, no, it, it was just a garden picnic. <laughs> well, it was... It was ve- The styling was also beautiful. There were lots of kind of butcher blocks and things. Mm. Very nice. If people want to see the video or indeed yesterday's video that will be on our instagram stories at virgin radio uk uh, check that out there uh, congratulations michelle well done you've got 500 pounds to spend at waitrose and also congratulations to our winner joanne from yesterday too all right take care of yourself bye Thank bye you, michelle bye. take care bye 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 the graham norton radio show with waitrose you can taste when it's waitrose Virgin Radio. I am joined by my first guest of the day. It's Sarah Ferguson, Duchess of York, who returns with another Mills and Boone uh, book. So, uh, one, how are you? Um, Graham, I'm so excited to see you. Except you said my first guest of the day. How many guests do you have? Two. Oh, good. So I'm still special. <laughs> oh, yes, you're still very special. It's not, it's not, it's not like a deli counter, you know. <laughs> There's only one more after you. Uh, so tell me this. Uh, you'd written children's books and you'd written uh, about yourself, but how did your relationship with Mills and Boone happen? How did they come to you? How did they pitch it to you? Well, yeah. actually, it's the other way around. I, oh, OK. I decided that uh, I think Mills and Boone has been around for 100 years. They're great people. And I love uh, Lisa Milton and the whole team of Mills and Boone, HarperCollins. They're all such great people. And so uh, I uh, went in there and I went... I think I'm going to have a best-selling novel and I think Mills and Boone is such a good organisation because they support women in literature. They, I, A big shout-out to Mills and Boone, actually, because they really help women escape from the you know, the turmoil of the day and they can write books, Mills and Boone publish them, but also they give hope to people and I really like that. So I went and said... I think we should write about a very strong red-headed woman who's been through an awful lot in 62 years and let's get on the bestseller list for Mills and Boone. And it's the first time ever they've been on the best Sunday Times bestseller list best seller list because of Lady Margaret and her heart for compass. And you're sort of teasing the the readers in a way because, you know, as you say, uh, there's the red hair, there's the rebellion, there's the royal connections, all of that. Uh, how, how much do you allow yourself to put yourself in these books? Because obviously, you know, readers are slightly thinking... I wonder if I wonder if she had something like this happen to her. Well, Graham, firstly, I'm so excited to see you, my friend. I'm really enjoy- <laughs> I'm really enjoying well, I haven't this. I've seen moment. you in ages, but then I was thinking, oh, that's right, I haven't seen anyone in ages. So that's <laughs> yes. Well, you look. By the way, anyone listening, he looks very good looking and very happy and very well. So, now, so does Sarah. So oh, does Sarah. Thank you, thank yeah, you. Yeah. Well, that was yeah, yeah. Um, So, Graham, <laughs> just quickly, uh, this her heart for a compass. It, I'm going to tell you here and now because the softback's out, it's been a year, it is very much me. It is very much me. It is my friendship with Diana, of course, which is Queen Victoria's daughter, Princess Louise. I have a lot of feeling about... In the book, I've written quite a bit about that, and uh, in, in my novel. But, but I know what it felt like to be best friends with Diana, so it was lovely, the support. And so in the book, you see Louise and... Uh, Lady Margaret being very close. Then, of course, uh, Lady Margaret goes against um, 
the rule book mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and then and then she off she disappears um into uh, off to scotland then to ireland and then uh, of course the really fun bit i had was writing from getting the uh ship from dublin to new york arriving in new york and then of course she then writes children's books and um supports charity in new york and really the american people have been so good to me sarah and uh, gave me a job for 12 years that I did a big shout out for America because they really have been so supportive. And then she comes back <laughs> and Lady Margaret, well, you've got to read it. <laughs> Don't tell us the whole thing. No. <laughs> that's, that's always a mistake. Sometimes I ask people on the show to tell me about their movie and they tell the whole, like, to the end. And you're like, pretty sure you weren't supposed to tell me that. Uh, but, um, but it's interesting you say about, you know, you fought against the rule book because obviously you, you did. Do you, you know, you do look at your daughters now and think how lucky they are that they have more freedom. They have they can kind of flex their muscles and kind of you know um, do that thing, put their elbows out a bit. Mm. Um, are you kind of do you look back and are you jealous of them? Uh, well, it's interesting, Graham, that you say, "Oh, you did break the rule book." I still <laughs> believe every day. But who's written the rules? Yeah, and it's 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 only your own integrity of of kindness and goodness and and always uh, turning your cheek if someone does um, hurt you or harm you or something's written about you or whatever. Don't just carry on. Just look in the mirror. If your integrity is right, if you look and look at yourself and say, actually, you know, maybe I was a bit ignorant. I could have done things differently. But don't you can't you got can't beat yourself up. You've got to move on. So, yes, when I'm talking about my girls, I brought them up to understand uh, how they feel. And I talked to them very, very early on. Express yourself, express your feelings. Because then once you do, you tend not to make such big poo traps that I fell into. And I think a 12 year old that is abandoned by her mother. No excuses, don't worry, I'm not making excuses. But but it's a big sense of, of self-sabotage of yourself because you must be worthless for your mother to leave you. And therefore, I think I've acted that out um, for, for, I don't know, how long? 12 to 62 is... Well, you work it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, a while. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting there, though. And, and I think what's extraordinary about you is, you know, that you... You found yourself in this situation. You were suddenly catapulted into this enormous global fame, whereas your daughters are born into it. I mean, do they have do they have an ease with it that you didn't have? They um, that firstly, I think it's you're absolutely right. I think they have that you know as parents. Um, Andrew is very, very much uh, sticks to the navy, the navy schedules and has real discipline and is very disciplined about and has always been like that. And then along comes the river, which I call myself, which is gives that sense of of humour and sense of joy and and the sense of a li- little more freedom. And I've always been like that with the girls, so they have the best of both. And I think with the way Beatrice and Eugenie are behaving and have behaved is, is just extraordinary. I mean, the last. I've no, I, I can't get over how beautiful my girls look. <laughs> I mean, when they went off to the Jubilee Thanksgiving service, wasn't that just beautiful? I couldn't get over it. There was Beatrice in blue and usually in orange, and they smiling. And of course, it was right. We were we were so grateful. We had. A, I was watching the telly, going, "Well done, girls! You're smiling." <laughs> Everybody else looked a bit sort of, you know, very yeah, serious, yeah, yeah. and they were smiling and they were really thanking their grandmother for seventy years. And I, I, I was screaming at the at the TV. And of course, as I normally do. And of course, 
course you are a granny, which is unbelievable. I mean, it must be very unbelievable for you. <laughs> How did this happen? <laughs> well, the good news is... Uh, I think that uh, it's so fabulous to be a granny. And for all those grannies out there, I'm going to, I'm going to own Super Gran. Super Gran can, right? <laughs> uh, but, but when I go in to uh, see August, who's 16 months, he really finds me funny. So, he, so <laughs> Graham, for once I know that they, he really is thinking I'm funny. And then Sienna, uh, oh, she's just just unbelievable. And, and she sort of does a facial. She's only seven months. But she immediately grabs my chumpy cheeks and goes, oh, I want to chomp your cheeks, Granny. <laughs> but it's... So, yes, I have... I do have... I'm very, very, very lucky. Well, you were saying there's another one on the way? Yes, it's coming out in February. The copy editing has been improved and everything, and so we'll start publicity. Or oh, you can have me back on the show. Yeah, please um, do. <laughs> yeah, anytime. I invite myself. Uh, in <laughs> September and October we start, because the next one... I'm getting more confidence, Graham. I started uh, with Aileen, Tar- with Marguerite Kay. Whoops! I started with Marguerite <laughs> Kay um, on uh, in this book, Her Heart for a Compass, and now I'm and now I'm really um, so sort of getting more confidence. And thanks to Marguerite's r- real real support, and uh, an intriguing lady, Graham does have does have. Uh, oh, it's very intriguing. Okay. Yes, yeah, a little more. Behind the curtain and things. Oh, a little bit more raunch than mm. yeah. I mm. mean, there's a romance in this. Yes, but yes, but yes, yes. But the next one, I'm really excited about. Okay. So it's it's Lady Margaret moves into Lady Mary, her younger sister, and through Lady Mary, Sarah is more is more. Um, what's the word? I don't know. I dread to, I dread to think. <laughs> think carefully before com- you say it. More confident. <laughs> confident. Let's go with confidence. Now, you wandered in today looking like a distracted granny because you had dolls with you, but they have a, a serious purpose, the dolls. <laughs> I enjoy being a distracted granny. That's very good, Gran. Uh, yes, there are two, uh, two uh, rag dolls standing at around 16 inches, and uh, one is a little boy called Little Blue. Uh, he, in fact, I invented him in 1991 uh, to start a foundation called Children in Crisis, uh, all about education. And he was the logo uh, of that of that of that charity I started. Uh, and I can't believe it for anyone listening, but Little Blue's colours are in fact blue and yellow. Yes. Of Ukraine. Yeah, who always were, yeah. Uh, and that was 1991, which I th- is quite extraordinary. So uh, Children in Crisis then uh, went into the uh, very, very poor area of Upper Silesia uh, in Poland and uh, 28 Days of Clean Air gave two years of life to a child that was that was very... Um, that was suffering from pollution at that at that time. So it's been a long time I've been in the philanthropic world. And then in America for uh, 12 years, as I said, I've been the, was a very long-standing uh, spokesperson for Weight Watchers. And as I was there, I thought I'd better thank the American people for giving me my my life and my work and my job and it was really good so I invented uh, Little Red which is a, a little girl doll she stands at about 16 inches and she was the logo of my charity called Chances for Children which saved the life of the children that were bombed in the Oklahoma City bombing well this supported the charities yeah. that saved and then I had an office on 101st floor of the World Trade Centre and in that next big disaster in America Little Red came down from 101 floors 
And CNN filmed it and said, look, a child's doll. And Larry King said, no, that's Fergie's Little Red and she stands for children's rights all over the world. And I then put her into Grand Zero Museum where you can see her to this day. And if you go there, you'll see Little Red and it says the only object. Wow. Yeah. And and it was very interesting because the following day she was on the front of the New York Post as a sign of hope for never to give up. And that's why she went to Croatia last week, Little Red did, and uh, she went, she's been to Poland. She's going to go back to Poland uh, to support the refugee children. And and so did Little Blue. And I've invented with Montessori schools and their group, global ambassador a thing called Play in a Box because I believe that every child that comes over the border, not just Ukraine, but uh, Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, that they should be given a place where they can read and uh, and, and play and be a child. Yeah. So that can change the legacy rather than uh, teaching fear. Let's teach joy. Let's teach hope. And I think last week in Croatia, I went to Vukovar, which was... Um, completely destroyed in, in 1993 and I looked at it now and it's a thriving town and I said let's let's take these pictures let's go back to Poland and all the borders around Ukraine and say you know what they rebuilt you can too yeah. we will do it for you you know we'll help and, and when you go to these places like last week as you say you were in, in Croatia and Zagreb uh, who are you to the children? You know, are you, uh, you know, are you just this special lady, and they know there's a fuss because it's it's you and and other people wandering around, or, or do they get your royal connection? What is your what is your role to those children when they see you? Uh, Graham, interesting interesting question. It's it's in, in my heart. I I think like a child, act like a child. I am a child in a way, but I I seem to be able to connect. Uh, through Little Red and Little Blue and my children's books, I just connect and they feel this energy of something. Uh, And I just love it. I think I'm the happiest person ever in those moments because I get out of my own way for a second. Yeah. And I suddenly look at a child with completely nothing, David or Sophie for once in, in, in Warsaw, I remember these two, and they have nothing, nothing at all. But but I get out of my way. I look at them. I hug them. I love them. And I I say, well, look, I'm just Fergie, or I'm just me. But you know, how do you fit? You know, and I start playing with them. Yeah. I interact with them, and then they realise, oh, well, I like that that funny fairy. And also, it's that thing you don't have to second guess yourself if you're talking to a child. They're not out to trip you up. They're not out no. to make you say something. Or, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's it's about the magic that you have, Graham. When you go on your on your television show or on your radio, you just have it, and you can't explain it. So, if you were walking down the street in Poland, you would have it too, because you just have that sense of joy, and I think that's what it is. And we're very lucky to have it. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm very lucky that you've come in today. Thank you so much for coming in to see us. Uh, congratulations on this. I was saying to you, it's a really good hooky read. You start reading this book and you will want to finish it. Uh, Her Heart for a Compass. It is uh, out now in paperback and the new one, what, uh, a woman, an intriguing woman? An intriguing lady. An intriguing lady. Yes. Mm. But I'm, I am deeply, deeply grateful for you having me on. Sorry if I talk too much, uh, but I'm just very much. passionate. You can't talk too much. 
And and good luck with all that work you're doing with uh, refugee children Thank as well. You. Thank you very much. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. There's a new play on the West End. It's called Madhouse, and one of its stars, David Harbour, joins us now. Hello, David Harbour. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? So when did you open? You opened on Wednesday? I guess uh, we previewed, first preview on Wednesday. I don't like to call that opening, but yes, we did have an audience, and uh, we did have a show. (laughs) And they stayed. They did stay for most, (laughs) most of them stayed. Um, and uh, so this is kind of an embarrassment of stars because I knew you were coming in to talk about the play and I thought, oh, David Harbour's staying, starring in a play. And then I picked up the bit of paper today and went, oh, and Bill Pullman's Bill in Pullman, it as well. Bill Pullman, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's the two of you. How does a new play reach you and Bill Pullman? How did that happen? Well, for me, it was very specific uh, and different than anything I've ever done. Basically, before the pandemic, I had wanted to come back to the stage and do something. And there had been some producer interest in that in general. And I knew Teresa Rebeck from way back. And I loved her as a writer. And I sat down with her and I said, can you write a play for me in a way? And she had this idea of this um, Dostoevsky, like Brothers Karamazov family with this horrible dying patriarch. And I have had some uh, experience with, you know, what we call mental illness and um, things like that. And so we tried to combine these ideas. And during the pandemic, she wrote this beautiful play. So I've been with this play for like three years. And oh, then, okay. Yeah. And it's a very personal expression. It's, it's certainly not my story, but it but it has a lot of, you know, my spirit in it. Um, and Bill came on fairly, a little more recently, but she, he had known Teresa a while back as well. But, you know, it, it feels, in that way, it feels like a real... Um, a real personal story and in that way I feel even more connected to it than if I'd come back and done you know a terrible production of Coriolanus or something which we long to see a Coriolanus it sounds like kind of a slice of almost American Gothic. Uh, yes, yes. Why was it just easier to mount a new production of a play in the West End than Broadway? Why here? No, that's sort of a, just a kismet situation. I mean, you sort of go where uh, where the love is. As, um, and ATG just got really interested in the play, loves Teresa's work. And, you know, the summer in London seems like a lovely place to be. It's a little more temperate than New York City. Yes. Uh, and so we just decided to do it here. And, you know, it's just been a nice confluence of events to get over here and do it. There wasn't a specific bent of like, oh, this needs to be done in London or it doesn't need to be done in New York. It was more just like the opportunity presented itself and it seemed like a great thing to do. And also, I think what's really good is it's not overblown. You know, if you have that star power of you and Bill, they could have put it in some huge theatre, but it's in the Ambassadors, which is a gorgeous little house. Yes, it's a gorgeous house out front. Uh, Oh, my dressing room is about the size of this wow. table. You but... come to the West End, you start moaning about our terrible dressing rooms. I'm sorry, it's tiny. No, uh, no, it's lovely. It's a very intimate theater, and you do feel like, you know, even when you're up in, quote, the worst seat in the house, you see everything perfectly. You feel like you're right there. It's a beautiful house to play in. And we were talking, because the, the, I guess, because they're marketing a play before they've seen it on its feet. So it, uh, the marketing is yes. talking talk about dark, Darkly comic. Yes. Is it more just dark? 
<laughs> no, there's definitely a lot of humor in it. There's a lot of humor in it, and it's surprising. I mean, each night it's a little bit different in terms of what people are going for. I do think it is a play that sort of starts light and descends into darkness sort of quickly in tension. But, but there's, you know, it's sort of got everything. The hard thing about Teresa's plays is I can't really categorize them. So you go on interviews and you say, what's this play about? You know, And I say dark comedy, but... It, it's just sort of everything. It's just very, it's like life. It's like you go through your life and it's just, you got all kinds of stuff. You got things that are funny and things that are horrible. And uh, we have all that within two hours. And did you know Bill Pullman before this? I did, yeah. We supposedly did a movie together called The Equalizer, but we had no scenes together, I don't think. Um, <laughs> and we, uh, you know, we met at a party or something, and he, he had always liked my work, and I, I, of course, am a huge fan of his from way back, Spaceballs territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I had known him a little bit, and then when we started working on this, uh, you know, he's just become such a friend and a mentor and just, you know, magnificent actor so. and how long is it since you've been on stage because obviously with your yeah. career taking off it's harder to find these chunks a thousand years oh is yeah. it is no it? no no eight years eight okay, years so not, too, not, not too long yeah the, la- the last time I was on stage was Shakespeare in the Park I actually played uh, Troilus and Cressida I played uh, Achilles for um, six performances because I popped my Achilles tendon no yes on stage that's just stupid and I had it is, it's called method acting Graham <laughs> I have weak Achilles, apparently. <laughs> now, now you do. <laughs> and is it like riding a bike? Is it, or is That's it? F- funny. It sort of is, yes. But I was very nervous to start, and I didn't realize the amount of stamina that I needed. I mean, these two show days, and you know, it's incredible the amount of work that theater artists do. And you know, there's so many great supporting actors in this company who just do tons of plays and I'm sort of in awe of that amount of work because I am used to being on a set and you know taking a lot of time in my trailer and then coming out for three minutes and running down a hallway with a gun and that is not what this experience is and by the way if you're sitting at home thinking I'm pretty sure I'm seeing that today at half three you are it is it is on today at half three yeah yeah my voice will hold up I promise Kate in Wellison went to see it last night uh she wants me to tell you how amazing Madhouse is uh it made me laugh and cry there you go thanks Kate she's annoyed she didn't get a picture with you but apart from that uh sorry (laughs) it's a little hard there's like you know it's it's a little hard does after show things you know you're exhausted after two shows and I try to take as many pictures I can sign as many things as I can no, 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 no. okay please don't shame Kate, me Grant, Kate, please don't shame Kate me Kate saw a play Kate. what more do you want Kate? <laughs> thank you for coming Kate that live on in your memory uh, is that weird because it's you and Bill Pullman mm. because of Stranger Things is there more excitement when you leave the stage door uh, in the under 14 set absolutely <laughs> absolutely Pullman's got nothing on me <laughs> I mean, look, that man gets a ton of attention. He is, uh, he is definitely... His ego is fine. His ego is fine. But, it, you know, the show, season four, just dropped. So in the zeitgeist, you know, it's funny. Like, even walking around the city, you know, I, there can be, like, six months where nobody really... And then the show comes out, and you're just in everybody's consciousness yeah. in a certain way. Yeah. And we were talking about this during the, during the record. You know, you look at your CV, and you were very successful. You were in Bond movies. You were, yeah, yeah. you know, The Equalizer. You were in all these things. You worked. You yes, must have thought, yes. 
I'm a successful actor. Oh, yeah, I yeah. made it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, you were doing it. much better than all your friends. Yeah. You were great. <laughs> exactly. So what, when the Stranger Things came along, was it just, presumably it was just another gig? Yes, very much so. I didn't think it would be anything different than any other work I'd done, you know, over the past, which is, you know, respected sort of within the industry, a bit of a supporting guy and good stuff, solid good stuff. But then the weekend that Stranger Things came out, it was a deluge. I've I've never experienced it before or since. And there I have, you know, in, in your phone, I don't know if you have this, but you you you'll have a driver or something and he'll be like uh, put my number in your phone you just have you meet a high school friend you never text them but yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you just i have like hundreds of numbers in my phone i use about 10 of them and that weekend every single number i had in my phone texted me holy crap stranger things oh my god amazing stranger things so i got like hundreds of texts from all these people and that's never happened it just hit a chord with people that i'd never hit before and did netflix know that was coming or was did it take them by surprise as well i mean they have a retro i uh, retroactive idea of what happened because before it came out i had a friend who was on a very popular tv show and there were no ads anywhere and he was like, they're burying the show. They don't believe in it. They don't like it. And I was like, damn, you know, my, my shot at Netflix. And then when the show became so successful, their uh, marketing idea was that they didn't want to over-market it so that people could discover it and it could have a grass. <laughs> there of you course. Go. Exactly. It's a way to, like, you know, not pay for any marketing. And then when it hits, take all the credit. We're so clever. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Um, and because... Uh, you know, obviously the kids are the kids, uh-huh. uh, but a lot of the the uh, I'll call you adults uh-huh. <laughs> in, in I appreciate have, that. have these resonances with kind of eighties. You know, Winona yeah. Ryder and Matthew oh, yeah, yeah. Is there something I'm missing? Did you have some connection to something like that? Was there I so- think, um, and the Duffers tell me this often, is just that I sound like Harrison Ford uh, sometimes <laughs> when I'm like yelling at someone. They they think I sound a lot like Han Solo, so I. I think that's my only connection to the 80s and uh end of season three did you think that was curtains for you did you kind of pick up the script and go oh well that was a good run <laughs> no no i lied to the press for like a year because i had to pretend i didn't know but no i mean the duffers and i've been talking about this character and sort of where he goes throughout the whole arc of the show so i knew even when that fake death had occurred sort of what was going forward thank god because i need the work of course you do yeah, yeah. Uh, hence you can afford to be in the west end exactly. in that horrible dressing room yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, run, don't walk to the Ambassador Theatre in the West End to see Madhouse, uh, starring David Harbour. Uh, thank you so much for coming in to see us. Thanks because uh, I, I genuinely appreciate it because it's it's not even your day off, and look at you, <laughs> you feel okay. double juicy. So it's my pleasure. My thank pleasure. you very much. Take care of yourself. Congratulations on everything. Thank you so much for joining me on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. And hey, have you clicked that follow button on our socials? If not, you are missing out on all behind-the-scenes action from the kitchen to the studio. Just look up at Virgin Radio UK on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Speak soon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. 